Well, let me uh, welcome you here to Big Valley Grace and welcome over in the venue. Thank you, uh, Pastor Jared, for leading worship over there. Pastor Joel for uh, shepherding the, the group over there. If you're watching online, blessings on the radio. We're glad you're with us. Um, today begins a, a unique season. Today begins uh, Advent, the Advent season. And for uh, some of you, that, that doesn't mean anything. For some of you, you, you think it means something, but you, you really don't know what it, what it means. Um, today is a day when a lot of people are able to go, or they are going, to the hospitals, and they're visiting their loved one that was trampled on Good Friday, <laughs> or their loved one that was tasered, <laughs> so they could get, you know, the person could get the... the, the you know, the towels that they wanted. It's pretty pathetic what's happened in America. It ought to make those of us that name the name of Christ kind of nauseous. They have all these cameras now in all of these stores so you could actually see the people getting beat up trampled, punched out, tasered, shot, so that someone could get to the, the flat screen TV. It really is quite amazing what the enemy has been able to do in this country over this very, very unique season called the Christmas season. I don't begrudge any business being open on Thanksgiving. They're, they're certainly free to do that. There were about 40 million people that went into all the Walmarts. Uh, they, they track all that. And I would suspect that a good you know, percentage of those that were out uh, shopping on Thanksgiving were followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you. And that's up to you. You're free to live your life and do what you want with the time allotted to, to you. One of the things that has troubled me as your pastor is what has happened to this time of year and how it's been really hijacked by the enemy. It's been hijacked by uh, materialism and commercialism, and uh, it's really become something that, that I think would make Jesus nauseous. Now, we as believers always gather around our tree and we always say some verse, so we'll pray or whatever, and then it's just crummy free-for-all that's just is sickening. For me, it was a number of years ago. I was, it was after a Christmas in our own family, and um, my children were younger, and it, was the, 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 it started out good. Uh, the first quarter of Christmas was a pretty good quarter. You know, we'd gather around, had breakfast, and enjoyed <laughs> fellowshipping together. We began by opening up some gifts, and there was a lot of gratitude and thankfulness. And, but by the end of it all, by the fourth quarter, uh, we had lost something. And as the spiritual leader of my home, I, I had created, uh, so I had allowed something to happen, created something in my home that was just crummy. My, my children, I love them deeply, are, were, were, they were like crack addicts except for the crack wasn't some drug they snorted up their nose or whatever, it, were, it was presents. Presents, more presents, presents, 
more presents. And, and, and their life was consumed with that. And we just went, man, we can't do this anymore. Uh, I'm, resp- I'm going to stand before God Almighty someday and give an account for how I raised my family and loved my family and, and discipled my family and all those kinds of words. And something had to change. And so my wife and I just decided, uh, and we shared this with you uh, a a long time ago, and we bring it back every year, some of you are new, is we were just going to take that passage based upon the three gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus, and we were going to kind of transform our Christmas. It wasn't our original idea. This has been done for years. We just kind of made it us, and I told you that this would be available to you out in the lobbies, the resource center, information center, in the back of the venue, we've got some of these. You can go onto our website and download it if if you want. We put it there. But what it is, it's, it's just, we just created a new family tradition for us, and that was uh, we were going to give our children, I'm going to give my, my wife, three, three gifts. The first gift is the gift of gold, and gold, uh, we actually wrapped the gifts in gold. My wife went out and bought all the paper, and there's gold wrapping paper, and that gold gift represents the fact that Jesus was a king. He was royalty. And guess what? Kings kind of get whatever they want. I mean, they're, they're royalty. And that's always the big gift in our family. So uh, my daughters, my son, they, they pick a big gift. It could be a bicycle. It could be, you know, it's something big. It's usually the most expensive gift. And, and they, each one of them gets a, a gold gift. I, I get a gold gift, one gold gift. And then you have the frankincense gift, which represents the fact that, that Jesus was pure. He was deity. And that's kind of the spiritual gift. And so we always get a, it could be a Bible, it could be a journal, it could be a set of DVDs on the Bible. It, um, it could be anything like that. One year I got my wife a year subscription to Ravi Zacharias's ministry. So every month she got a magazine or a CD. It has a, a spiritual um, uh, a feel uh, to, to it. Uh, I think last year I got Kate a, you know, a little necklace that had a verse on it, looked like dog tags or whatever. And then, uh, then the last gift, the third gift, is the, the gift of myrrh. And myrrh represents the fact that Jesus was going to die. Myrrh is something that they would have wrapped the body with. So it's kind of a body gift. It could be lotion. It could be perfume. It might be a shirt, a hat, a coat, you know, something like, something like that. And so what we did was, uh, and then what we do at our home is we, we, Gracie will, or somebody will be like, you know, the, the person that hands out the gifts, and we enjoy each other opening up the gold gift, and we see what the gold gift was, and then we see what the frankincense gift was, and we see what the myrrh gift was, and uh, we're, we're thankful that, you know, hey, I, I could afford a lot of gifts. The issue isn't whether I can afford the gifts or not. The issue is, is that it had become about gifts. And I know that this has helped a lot of you. I've had lots of comments over the years about this, and so it's available for you to pick up um, wherever, and hopefully, you know, you might, uh, you can tweak it. You don't have to do anything you want. You you can keep doing Christmas however you want to do it. But as your pastor, I just want to encourage you maybe to think a little bit differently about this incredible day that represents the fact that God so loved us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come in the form of a human being for us. And we can lose that in the midst of of all the the stuff. And all you gotta do is just look at our our country today and what happens. You know, 
Black Friday and all this. Just unbelievable. It's just, it's kind of sad. And what makes it even more sad to me is to see Christians that get caught up in all of that. And I'm not saying you can't go out on a Black Friday and buy a gift. Maybe you get a good deal. Praise the Lord for that. And then, by the way, what that does is this. Uh, that allows my wife and I to be a blessing to what God's doing here. It, it, there, there's more shekels available to, to give away. And um, I'd rather give money to be a blessing to the kingdom, reach people for Christ, to help the needy, the poor, whatever it might be, be help other churches, which we do here, than buy something that my kids take, look at, throw in a closet, and there it sits for a year. Um, we're in a series here at Big Valley Grace where we're looking at what God has to say about certain topics. And these are topics that um, over the past year, 18 months or so, that you've shared with me, things that you'd like for me maybe to talk on, and every couple of years I do a series like this. And what we're going to talk about today was the number one thing. This was the thing that most people wanted me to talk on. And it almost didn't make the list because I, I didn't know how I would go about it. I didn't know how I would couch it or how it would all work itself out. And there was one staff guy in particular who said, no, 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 that, that's the one you have to do. Because we as followers of Christ just, just don't do that one very, very well. And, and uh, so today we're going to look at what God has to say about judging others. Now, uh, what do I mean by, by judging others? Well, let's say you have a married friend and you find out that they're having an affair on their spouse. What should you do? Do you make a judgment about the situation and have a, have a conversation with your, with your friend? The world would say, who are you to judge, right? It's their lives. Just stay out of it. But what, what, what does God have to say about something like that? Or let's say you find out that your single friend is having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend. What should you do? Do you make a judgment about the situation and go have a conversation with your friend? Or, you know, the, the, the world says, you know, who are you to judge? It's their life. They ought to do what they want. What, what, what does God say we, we ought to do? Or let's say that you have a friend who's in high school and you know they're going to parties and drinking alcohol. What, what should you do? Should you make a judgment call about it and go and talk with them or their parents or whatever? The world would say, you know, who are you to judge? Who, who, who are you? It's their lives. Stay out of their, their business. And what we want to try to figure out is what would God say? Or let's say you're a student. Maybe you're in high school, junior high. Maybe you're in college. And you have a, a friend or you see somebody who's cheating. They're looking at, at, uh, uh, at somebody else's answers. What do you do at that moment? Do you make a judgment about what's happening and have a conversation with your friend who's cheating? Or, you know, just kind of sit back and go, well, you know, the world says, who, who am I to judge? It's their life. I'll, you know, why, why should I get involved? What, what, would, what would God say? Or let's say you, you see someone that's acting in a way that's inappropriate or talking in a way that's inappropriate. What should you do? Should you make a, a judgment about the, the, the scenario and have a conversation with the person? Or, you know, do you just kind of, well, you know, who am I to judge? What, 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 is, what does God have to say about this? 
Well, I want us to, to read uh, 10 of the most misunderstood words maybe in all of the Bible. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. And somehow Satan and the demonic have taken these 10 words and twisted them around to the point that many Christians have bought into a very goofed up view of this passage. In fact, some of you have a very goofed up view of these, these 10 words. There's no doubt about it. Now what's really interesting to me is this, is that most of the world doesn't believe in God, most of the world doesn't believe in the Bible, but without a doubt, most of the world has fallen in love with these 10 words. In fact, I've had, um, I've had people who don't believe in God, they don't believe in the Bible, quote this verse to me. In fact, uh, I know a lot of believers or I, I know a lot of unbelievers, people who don't believe in God, they don't believe that the Bible is God's word, who have done something that many of you haven't done. They actually have that verse memorized. They've memorized a Bible verse. In a weird way, these 10 words have become the, the, the motto of an unbelieving world. And unfortunately, they've become the motto of too many people who are followers of Jesus Christ. So it's been my prayer that over the next few minutes that we have together, somehow I'll, I'll be able to bring some clarity to what Jesus meant when he said, don't judge others and you won't be judged. And I think when I'm done, you'll, you'll, you'll get it. I, I, I believe this. Now to really understand these 10 words or this passage, you have to go back in history and take a look at the religious leaders at the time, the scribes and the Pharisees, because they're the ones that Jesus said this to. So who were they? Well, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were basically a, a group of people that uh, blew off God's word. They, they didn't care about what God's word had to say about how they should live, and so they made up their own standards of morality. They made up a bunch of rules and regulations and laws that they expected the people to live by. What they had done was they had basically just added to the word of God. And after a long period of time, these man-made rules or regulations had become a part of people's daily lives. They had become traditions that the people lived by. And so when Jesus showed up, he didn't care about these man-made rules. He didn't care about their man-made regulations. He, he didn't care about these laws that they had created that were over and above what God's word had said. He didn't care about their traditions that they taught. In fact, listen to this exchange between Jesus and some religious leaders in Matthew chapter 15. Some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And they asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. And uh, the law was, was that just the Levites had to wash their hands. But the Pharisees, the scribes, they came along and said, well, listen, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna add to the word of God, and we're just going to say that everybody's got to wash their hands. God's word doesn't say that. God's word says that only the Levites were to wash their hands. 
And so Jesus shows up on the scene. He didn't care about their man-made rule, their man-made law, their decrees. He didn't care about their traditions. The Word of God doesn't say that everybody has to wash their hands. Only the Levites do. And so what I'm going to do, Jesus said, is I'm just going to follow what God has to say. And that bothered the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders would judge everybody else on that tradition, not the law. Not the fact that the Levites were the only ones, but they judged everybody else on their own man-made law, their own man-made rule, the, the tradition. And Jesus replied, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct command of God? God said this to the great prophet Isaiah. He said, these people worship me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is based on nothing but human rules. I think this passage might best describe the religious leaders. Their man-made rules had become as important or even more important than what God had actually said. And after a long period of time, these human rules had become traditions. And these traditions to the religious leaders had replaced the authority of the word of God. And what this did was spawn one of the most hideous sins of all of Christianity. And that's the sin of self-righteousness. You see, self-righteous people, they, they make up their own rules to life. They may even believe in the Bible. There are a lot of Christians that are self-righteous. I, I meet them almost every day. They, they, they believe in God's word. There's no doubt about that. But they've also then just added things to the word of God. And they judge their own life by it. Well, if I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I do do this, and I do do this, then I'm okay with God. But the bummer is, is they're free to do that. You want to add stuff, you know, to, to your life, do it. But what a self-righteous person does is they then take those rules and they put that template on you. For instance, two weeks ago, I had a lady come up to me and she asked me, Pastor Rick, do you have a television in your home? And I said, no, I got three. <laughs> and she began to tell me about the fact that that was evil and wicked and all of that. And I said, ma'am, listen, if you want to be a self-righteous person and put that template on your own life, you're free to do that, but don't do that to me. I don't put any rules or laws. I'm not going to burden you down with anything God doesn't burden you down with. Self-righteous people do that. And that's what was happening when Jesus wrote those 10 words. The religious leaders were burdening people down with laws and rules that God himself wasn't burdening the people down with, so to speak. self-righteous person, they, they, they make up their own rules. In other words, what God says or requires of a person isn't good enough for a self-righteous person. So they, they just come up with extra biblical rules to life. They determine in their own mind what is right and what is wrong. And then ultimately, self-righteous people begin to judge others by those self-determined rules. In other words, they begin to judge others, not, not by what God's word has to say, 
but they begin to judge others by whatever, whatever their thing is. I, I don't go to movies, or I don't have TVs in my house, or whatever it is. And if you have those, those convictions in your own life, praise the Lord if you don't go to movies. Good for you. Praise the Lord if you don't have a TV in your house. Good, good for you. I'd never try to change your conscience. But don't put that burden on me. Don't burden that burden on your neighbor. Don't put that burden on somebody else. That's what was happening as it relates to those 10 words. Jesus was talking to a group of self-righteous people who had burdened down the people with a whole lot of stuff that God didn't care about. Now, as that is a, a, a backdrop, I, I want us to look at those 10 words again. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. What, what does it mean? What was Jesus trying to communicate there? Is God saying to us that we can never judge anybody or, or anything? Is God saying that we as Christians can never confront anybody or have a conversation with somebody that's violating the, the, the word of, of, of God? Is, is that what he, he's saying there? Well, let's look at what Jesus said in a few verses after this in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15. Jesus says to all of us, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Beloved, obviously Jesus doesn't have a problem with you making judgments about people. I mean, the, the only way I can be uh, aware of false prophets is I've got to make a, a judgment about them. Are they really harmless sheep? Or, or maybe they're vicious wolves. The only way you will know whether I'm a false prophet or not is you've got to make a judgment. You've you got to look at the Word of God. That's why we put it on the jumbotrons. We, we put it in your notes. We want you to see the Word of God or not. Because you're to make a judgment. Now, you may not like my inflections, you may not like my clothes, you may not like how I teach the Bible, you may not like the fact that I go long or I'm too short. Th those are all secondary. But Jesus wants you to make a judgment about me. Is this guy really teaching the Word of God? And, and you, 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 the only way you can figure that out is you, you got to kind of investigate uh, me a little bit. Jesus said, you know, look at the fruit of people's lives. Make a judgment about their lives. You, you can identify a, a, a good person by how they choose to live. Look, I can look at the life of Hitler and make a judgment about him, can I? I can look at the life of Billy Graham and I can make a judgment about him. I can look at the life of uh, uh, Pastor Rick Thompson or Pastor Bobby Kirchner, and I can, I can make a judgment about his life by, by how he, he lives, you see. You can look at, at my life, and you can make a judgment about my life. I can look at your life. I can look at how you choose to raise your family. I can choose to look at how you use your free time, how you spend your money. 
I can, I, I can make some judgment calls about that. Paul said this in Romans chapter 16. He said, and now, make, and now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause division and upset people's face by teaching things contrary to what you've been taught. Stay away from them. Some, such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They're serving their own uh, personal interests. And beloved, once again, the only way that I can watch out for crummy people who might be causing divisions is I've got to make a judgment about it. I've got, got to look at some things and make a judgment about it. For those of you that are single and you go out on a date, there's a, there's a purpose in that. You sit down, you're having some coffee, and you're listening to the guy, you're listening to the gal, you're trying to figure some things out. You're making judgments about the person. Are they a Christian? Are they following the Lord? Do they serve in their church? Do they give? Are we on the same page morally, ethically? I know of a, uh, of a, a guy who, wanted, who wants to be a missionary in a foreign land. He's always wanted to go away to the mission field, okay? And he's single. And he took a young lady out on a date, a beautiful young woman. Beautiful on the outside, beautiful on the inside. She was what we might call a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. Beautiful gal. And as they were having coffee, he's making judgments about her, finds out the last thing she wants to do in her life is to go to the foreign mission field. And so guess what he does? Hey, this has been fantastic. I'm, uh, you're my sister in the Lord, but I'm going to make a judgment that you're not the person I'm going to spend my life with. See, he, he's, he's doing what we're supposed to do. That's what the dating process is about, is making judgments about, about people. Obviously, Paul, Jesus didn't have a problem with you making judgments. Now, now Jesus is going to take judging to a whole other level. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. <laughs> if the other person listens and confesses, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two other people with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by one or two witnesses or two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Wow. That's Jesus. And I know some of you are going, hey, hey I like to love Jesus. Where's that Jesus? I, I, I like the love Jesus too. And the Bible's full of the love Jesus. And by the way, this is one of the beautiful things about love. Is that love makes judgments. Love says, I am going to have a conversation with you if you choose to blow off God and his word, not your little self-righteous rules. But when someone's in direct violation of the word of God, love demands that we go and have a conversation with somebody, that we talk with them. And, and when that doesn't work, love demands that you bring others along with it, with you, to have a conversation. And I like that word better than confront but you can use the word confront if, if you'd like. Paul added these, these thoughts in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, 
when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Obviously, Paul's saying you gotta make a judgment, right? If you know someone's all goofed up in sexual stuff, you know, don't, don't hang around with them. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat, or cheat people or who, or who worship idols. Man, if you were to do that, you'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you were not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idol or is abusive or is drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, Paul says, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those that are inside the church who are sinning. Sinning. This. A direct violation of God's word. I'm not talking about having a TV in your house. I'm not talking about whether you go to movies or not. I'm not talking about whether you choose to have a glass of wine with your spaghetti. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. Those are all just self-righteous rules that people will try to put on, put on your life. It is our responsibility to judge those that are inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. And we're getting to a place here in a minute, and I think this is all, all gonna make some sense here in, in just a moment. You see, you and I have an obligation to God Almighty to make judgments about certain things. But not only are we to make judgments about certain things, but we're also called by God to confront those evil things. We're called by God to have conversations with people when we see that they are violating the Word of God. G.K. Chesterton, great theologian, said this, tolerance is the virtue of a man or a person who doesn't have any convictions. Now, Jesus also said this in John chapter 7, and this is the key thought, okay? This is going to be the launching pad to the practical piece of the message. Jesus said this, stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. And I want you to know that that little phrase right there is just loaded. It has so many implications for us today, it's, it's unbelievable. Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearance and figure out how to, how to judge people in the right way, a good way, a God-honoring way. Uh, a number of years ago, um, for those of you that might be visiting, my, my first wife was killed in an automobile accident. And at the time, I had a five-year-old who's now 22 years of age. But at the time... I would go and I would speak at this big Christian camp called the Hume Lake Christian Camp, and there'd be a thousand kids at this camp. Well, I had remarried and was married to Aaron at the time, and I'm up at the camp, and you get up there, and Sunday before the camp starts, you meet with all the youth pastors who have brought their kids, and you meet with all of the adult leaders that have come with the youth pastors, and then they get to meet the speaker, and then I would lay out, hey, here's what's going to happen this week. Tonight I'm going to talk about this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and, and be prepared on Wednesday. I'm going to have an altar call or whatever, and it's a chance for us to dialogue a, a, a little bit. Well, when I was being introduced, and I don't remember how it all went down, they, um, the, uh, whoever the leader of the camp was said, you know, this is Rick Countryman, is our speaker, and, 
And it was just, you know, whenever it was, last month or two months ago, uh, Rick remarried and we're, you know, happy for him, blah, blah, blah. And he's got his daughter running around up here. And I think she was probably six or seven at the time. And so I get up and I do my little thing. And afterwards, this young whippersnapper, young youth pastor comes up to me and goes, uh, I need to talk to you. And I go, yeah, what's up? He goes, I just want you to know, if I'd have known your story, I wouldn't have brought my kids here to listen to you. I said, really? I said, well, why is that? Well, I just, I just can't believe Hume would have a divorced guy up here. Oh. See, he didn't know the whole story. He just knows, he just heard I was remarried. And I said, well, my friend, I, I, I hope that maybe you do hear from the Lord up here this week, and I'm hoping that maybe you personally hear from the Lord. Didn't say a word to him that Monday night, I'm telling my story. So we go about our deal. It's now Monday night, and I get up there. Now I'm telling my story, and the guy's sitting right down here. And the whole time, this is what I was doing. And so uh, my wife died in a car accident. Now, nobody else knows this conversation. Nobody knows, because it was just him and I. And I knew what he was doing. He felt like a total loser. He felt like a toad. He was go sliding down in his chair. And I'm thinking, you know, he could just hardly wait for it to end so he could come up and say, I I'm sorry. And he did. And I said, you know, you need to be sorry. You learned a valuable lesson, young man. And that is, you didn't have all the facts, and you made a judgment about my life. And that's an important thing. We don't always have all the facts. We think we have all the facts. It may look like we have all the facts. You may have a bunch of people who told you something, and you think you got all the facts. Maybe you don't have all the facts. All I know is what Jesus said here in John chapter 7 is, is critical, that we got to stop judging by appearances. And we got to make the right judgment. And the key question today is, is how do you and I make the right judgments? How do we make good godly judgments? How, how do we confront evil or sin? And what I'm going to do now is you, you, you ought to take that, that, that little sheet of paper and get it out. Because I'm going to give you four practical things that I think will be a real blessing in your life. Because all of us, obviously, if we name the name of Jesus Christ, are called to confront sin. We're not to be tolerant of sinful behavior. I'm talking about the self-righteous rules we, we, we might have. I'm talking about what God's word has to say. So these are four things you always need to keep in mind when you're gonna confront sin. Number one, it always begins with prayer. Always talk with God before you have a conversation with someone or confront someone on their sin. Always pray first, pray. The Bible says in James chapter five, when a believing person prays, great things happen. Great things happen when you just stop and you pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit would go before you. Pray that something might happen before you ever talk to them. You see, one of the great things that often happens in my life is when I know that somebody is, is living in, in biblical sin. I'm not to be tolerant. Jesus doesn't want me to be tolerant. I, I, I showed you some passages. I could have showed you a whole lot more. Before I ever go talk with that person, I spend time praying because here's something that's going to shock some of you. Do you know that God can accomplish things without your help? How could that be? You are so important to the kingdom. How could that possibly be? God needs me. No, he doesn't need you. Now, oftentimes he'll use you, but the Holy Spirit is quite capable of convicting someone of their sin. You see, you can begin to pray for someone, and before you ever go and speak with them, you know what? They've already recognized their sin. They've already done whatever it is they needed to do. They're already back 
in fellowship with the Lord again or whatever. Need to pray that maybe they would see the harm that they're doing to themselves, that they would see the harm that they're doing to their family, that they would see the harm that they're doing to the name of the Lord because of their, their crummy sin. It always begins with prayer. And sometimes, I'm not talking about a two-minute prayer. I'm done. No. It may be, you know what, I'm going to take this week. I'm going to take this month, and I'm going to give up my lunch hour. And instead of eating physical food, I'm just going to spend my, my lunch hour just talking with the Lord, praying for this individual, praying for my husband, praying for my wife, praying for my child, praying for my parent, praying for my uncle, praying for the guy that I play golf with, praying for the person in my small group, praying for that person you work with. I don't know who it is that you've got to have a conversation with, but it always begins with prayer. You're already going to be in huge trouble if you don't spend some time praying. The Bible says in this, in Psalms chapter 65, you faithfully answer our prayers with awesome deeds. And one of those awesome deeds is God moving in somebody's life before you've ever had that conversation with them. Your spouse. You see, you live with your spouse. You live with your kids, so probably the chances are pretty good that you're going to see crummy, sinful behavior in your spouse and your kids because you're around them all the time. And there'll be moments when you need to have a conversation with them. Jesus demands that you have a conversation with them. You're not to tolerate sin. Not to tolerate it. But it always begins with prayer. Now, now the second thing you do after you pray is, is, is the hard one, okay? Always confront your own sin first before you have a conversation with someone or confront someone about their sin. <laughs> Let's go back to Matthew chapter seven and those famous 10 words, do not judge others and you will not be judged. He goes on and says, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you're going to be judged. <laughs> and why worry about a speck, a little sin in your friend's eye, when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying to your friend, hey, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye. Hey, let me, deal, let me help you deal with that sin in your life when you can't see past the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Beloved, before you start to deal with someone else's stuff, you have to deal with your own stuff. Because when you haven't dealt with your own stuff, the sin in your own life, you're out of fellowship with God. And when you're out of fellowship with God, it's impossible to make a right judgment. Do you get it? When Jesus said you got to make right judgments, <laughs> If you haven't dealt with your own sin, that means you're out of fellowship with God. You can't make a right judgment. You can't do it. Listen, before you or I make some sort of judgment or confront somebody over their sinful conduct or behavior or whatever, you gotta be broken over your own sin first. Jesus says, Rick, before you make a judgment about somebody, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see more clearly how you can help remove the, the speck from your brother's eye, your wife's eye, your children's eyes, one of your family members' eyes. I don't know what it is, but I've got this sin radar. 
and I can spot somebody else's sin at 100 paces. I don't even have to know you. The problem is, I can't, it just never gets on to me. Can't see my sin, but I can sure see everybody else's. And there's a lot of people like that. Maybe it's not you, but, but I know it is for me. You see, part of the reason why is, is it makes you feel better when you see somebody else's sin. Whew, not as bad as that dude. Man, I, if my sin's not, you know, that guy's messed up, man. Let me help you get that thing out of your life, pal. I'll tell you, one of the things that used to just, was really crummy when I was the youth pastor here, was when a dad would confront their son about some sin in their life. You know, the dad's a drunk, and he's confronting his own son on something. It was like, dude, what a hypocrite my dad is. He's a drunk. A bottle of beer is, a 12-ounce bottle of beer is more important to him than his family. And he's confronting me on my sin? Hypocrite. Which is exactly what Jesus said, right? Now look, none of us are perfect. None of us. So if only perfect people could confront others, then Jesus never would have wrote Matthew 18. But the issue is, is that you have to deal with your own sin, and it could be that when you see something happen, and I'll just keep using this illustration, guys, uh, you're, you're a dad, and you see something crummy in your son's life, and you spend some time praying, and in that time of prayer, you ask God, God, help me to see my own sin, and God reveals to you, and I'm just going to keep using this, that you've got a drinking problem. You sit down with your son and say, son, I need to talk to you about something in your life, but let me first talk to you about some stuff in my life that God has revealed to me. I recognize that I'm, I'm out of control with my drinking. I'm out of control with my anger. I'm out of control with whatever it is, and, and I, I gotta deal with it, but it's not gonna stop me from being your parent right now. In other words, deal with it in your own life, and let your son or your daughter know you're dealing with your own stuff, because that certainly will make them much more receptive to you talking about their stuff. Listen to, listen to what Lamentations chapter three says. Let us examine our own ways. And one of the things we love to do is we love to examine everybody else. We love to look at everybody else's life and examine their life and then point out to them all the things that they need to deal with in their life instead of doing what the Bible says and examine our own ways, test our own ways. And it's at that point that when you really do spend some time with the Lord that you'll have to go, hey, man, I need to return to God. I've got some areas in my life where I just need to return to the Lord. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, who can say I've kept my heart pure, I'm clean without sin, and the answer is nobody. We're all messed up, we're all goofed up, and first you pray, and then you deal with the, your own sin in your own life. And let me just tell you something, this is, um, this is buying you some valuable time. This is buying you some time for the Holy Spirit to work. It, it, it's allowing the Lord to go before you so that when or if you have to have that conversation with that soul, the chances are far greater good things will, 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 will come of it. Jesus told this story 
in Matthew or in Luke chapter 18 that I think best captures the heart you need to have before you have a conversation with somebody about their sin. Verse 9 says, Jesus told this story to someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, and the other one was a despised tax collector, in other words, a sinner. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everybody else, for I don't cheat, and I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that loser tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his own chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you this, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's a great picture, I think, of the heart or the attitude that you have to go when you, when you talk with somebody, when you're gonna confront your spouse or your children or your parents, or whoever that person might be. Now, let me answer another important question here, and that is, what do you do or what do you say when someone says, hey, hey, who are you to judge me? Right, we've all heard that, right? You answer, I'm not your judge. I'm just simply speaking for the one that is your judge. That's the answer. I'm not your judge. You're not gonna stand before me, and I'm not gonna stand before you. I'm just taking the words from this book and I speak for that person. I'm not, I'm not adding in all my little self-righteous things, you know, whatever those things are. No, I'm speaking for this one. He is the one that's gonna judge you, not me. And, and God has commanded that I spend some time with you right now dialoguing about this, this issue in, in your life. Uh, N- n- number three, after you pray, after you deal with the sin in your own life, always confront sin in a way that brings honor and glory to God. And you, let me tell you something, you'll never do number three and number four if, if you don't do number one and number two. Okay, the, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, so whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, like confronting somebody on their sin, confronting your child about their sinful behavior, confronting a spouse, whatever it might be. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever, do it all for the glory of God. Let me tell you something. You don't get there if number one and two haven't happened. That man, there's, I wanna do this to God's glory. That's what I want to, to, to take place here. Uh, n- number four, always confront sin with a gentle and a humble spirit or, or attitude. And three and four kind of go together. And Paul says this in Galatians chapter six. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, who are you to judge them? No, it doesn't say that. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. 
Now, some of you don't know what that phrase, the law of Christ, means. And I'll tell you, what's really interesting is he, it, it's attached to confronting a brother or sister on their sinful behavior. And here's what the law of Christ is. Jesus says this, that the greatest thing you can do with your life is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is just as equally important that you love others the way you love yourself. That's the law of Christ. That's the two greatest commandments, that you love God and you love others. And Jesus says, when you go to a brother in the Lord, when you go to a sister in the Lord, might be your own children, might be your spouse, could be your parents, might be your grandparents, could be an aunt, an uncle, guy you play golf with, person you play tennis with, somebody who's a brother or sister in the Lord. And you have prayed, you've dealt with your own sin, you've gone with the attitude, I want to bring glory to God, and you gently and humbly have a conversation with him. That's when you're actually fulfilling the law of Christ. There's, it, it's one of the weighty ways that we love God and we love others when we have a conversation or confront somebody who is living a sinful life. And one of the, the beautiful stories in the Bible that, that I smile every time I read it. It's one of the reasons why I love being a preacher because this is the kind of God that I get to talk about. There's this great story in John chapter eight. The scribes and the Pharisees, remember those guys? <laughs> they brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commands to, to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Now here, look, I know we're over a little bit, but hang with me. Try to put yourself in that gal's position. It, it was a setup. They find her in the very act of, of, of having sex. Some guy. And they dragged her out of the house. Maybe her clothes were hanging off of her. And they're dragging her through town. And everybody's watching this thing. Everybody's looking at it. And they kind of throw her down in the pile of humanity on the ground. And all these men are standing around. Hey, Jesus, the law says she's supposed to be stoned. And here's how I know it was a setup. Because the law also said that the man should have been stoned. And she was caught in the very act. So where's the dude? I'll tell you where the dude was. I'll bet he was one of the scribes or Pharisees. These guys were losers. And so here's the scenario. Everybody's wondering, what's Jesus going to do? She's caught. She sinned. There's no doubt about it. She's, she's sinned. Whether it was a setup or not, this woman's in sin. They were testing Jesus that he might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and he wrote something on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now obviously they hadn't done number one, they didn't pray, and they hadn't done number two, they hadn't dealt with their own sin. 
Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, when they kind of saw what was being written, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was finally left alone with this woman in the center of this court. Straighten up, Jesus said to her. Woman, where, where are they? Did, did no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, I, I don't condemn you either. From now on, go and sin no more. Now, let me just tell you something. Let me give you the feel of this. Jesus waits until everybody's gone. He's going to have a conversation with this woman. He's going to, in, in, with, with great dignity. And this is the feel of that conversation. Look, I, I didn't come to condemn you. Your sin already condemned you. That's not why I'm here but I have a way better life for you. What you're doing with your life is really crummy. It's sinful. It's destroying you. Don't, don't live like that anymore. Go and sin no more. Don't, don't do that anymore. Don't use your body that way anymore. Don't use your life like that anymore. Don't, don't sin anymore. the dignity of Jesus with this woman. He's, he's disciplining her with dignity is what he's doing. He's confronting her on her sin. Some people, when they read that story, all they can see is, go and sin no more! You, you whore! How dare you live like that? And unfortunately, there's too many Christians that that's how they tend to operate. And if that's the way God came across in the scriptures, I want you to know, I, would, I wouldn't be a preacher. I, I, I wouldn't even be a believer. I wouldn't want to tell you about a God like that. But the God I love to tell people about is a God who, who, who loves us deeply, who has an incredible plan for our lives, and, and with great gentleness and great humility, he takes this woman and says, don't live like this. Don't sin anymore. Don't do that. You've been tricked. You've been deceived by the enemy and you're using, you're wasting the one life that you have. Don't do that. I've got something far, far better for, for you. So what, what's the goal in, of, of confronting someone that, that, that's in sin? And this is going to surprise some of you. Let me tell you, the goal is holiness. That's the goal. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better back then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God has chosen you as holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy because I'm holy. The reason why we have conversations with our spouses and our children and those that we care about, our church family, who are gooped up in sin isn't to make us feel better, it's because God wants his bride, the church, to be holy, to be spotless. God, God wants us, his people, to, to be sanctified, to be different, to be salt, to be light. God wants us to be holy, and when we get goofed up in sin, guess what? The bride's got a stain on it. The, the, the light's been snuffed out a little bit. 
The goal is always that his church, us, would be holy. And so when we see somebody caught up in sin, we, we go and we pray and we deal with our own lives and we, we go with this great attitude of, God, I want you to be glorified and I'm going to go humbly and gently because the church is to be holy. God's people, his called out bride is to be without fault, spotless. And so we have a, a command from God to make judgments and then we have a command from God to go and have conversations when we see crummy things going on. Holiness is always the goal. Holiness. God wants Big Valley Grace to be a holy place. He wants his bride here to be spotless, without fault. And so, listen. The world may tell you that you're to be tolerant. The world may tell you you're not to judge anybody else. But we have a book called The Bible that God left us, and it's the guidepost to life. God says, I want you to make judgments about other people. And when you see somebody who's in sin, you pray. Deal with your own sin. Go with the attitude of bringing glory to me and be humble. Listen, my friend, when God deals with me and with my sin, I, I, I want him to be humble with me. I want him to be gentle with me. Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And as we leave this place today, I pray we'd have a great time with our families, our loved ones, whoever that might be. I know a lot of family members are heading home. Safe travels for those that are, 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 are flying, driving home, whatever, God. Thanks for your goodness to us and help us, God, as we head into this Advent season to remember, really remember what the season's about and then act like it, live like it. And I pray this in your name and all of God's people said, amen. Hey, listen, go get your kids, okay? Go.